0: Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Just a reminder that I have a book out called Lump, published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. Lump is my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you don't believe me, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down, best books of 2023 so far. Between now and December 11th, Canadian readers can save 25% when they purchase Lump or any other Dundern book. Just go to Dundern.com and use code HOLIDAY23 at checkout. That's code HOLIDAY23 at Dundern.com to get 25% off the purchase of my new novel, Lump. My guest on this episode is Dimitri Nasrallah. Dimitri is the author of four novels, which have received nominations for multiple awards, and have won the Hugh McLennan Prize for Fiction and the McCausland First Book Prize. His most recent book is the novel Hotline, published in 2022 by Vehicule Press, where Dimitri also serves as the fiction editor. Hotline was long-listed for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and was a Canada Reads selection in 2023. In its review of Hotline, Quill & Quire said the novel intertwines hope and sorrow to create a moving story that sears the heart. Dimitri and I talk about how working as an editor changed the way he writes novels, how his plan to keep Hotline alive in readers' minds beyond the usual five or six weeks after publication got blown up in a good way by Canada Reads. We also talk about some of the frustrations he felt about how Hotline was discussed on Canada Reads, and how he is in no rush to complete the follow-up to that novel. The first thing I wanted to say was, uh, the week we're recording this is Happy Birthday. It was your birthday a few days ago, I believe?
1: Yes, it was. I finally made it to 46.
0: Welcome. Welcome to your uh, Carlsberg years, or... (laughs) I guess you're in Montreal, so what would that be? What is it your motivation? Years, years? My, my years of
1: not drinking beer anymore because of all the effects that it has with old age. It
0: kind of leads me to a question, though, about Hotline, which is uh, a quote that I've, I found in an interview um, you gave about the book, which was uh, talking about your mother's response to the book and obviously you drew upon some of her experiences for the novel, you said uh, what she told you about the book was, this is the first of your books that I've read that doesn't seem like it was written by an angry young man. When you're looking back over your four books, the three previous to Hotline, can you track them to some sense? Can you pin them somewhat to your age, the age you were when you created those? Do those feel like, oh, that was me when I was...
1: 23. That was me when I was 32. I mean, because I've I've never I haven't figured out how to write them quicker than in four to six year cycles Mm -hmm. uh, at this point. So they all kind of break down to a certain period in my life. And I was I mean, I look back on it now and it just seems almost impossible that I was able to publish my first book at twenty-six. Uh, even though it was with a small press um seeing people go through the process now it seems like i was incredibly naive and incredibly anxious about it and and it still managed to happen so i'm i'm really i mean it was it, that book black and it came out in 2005 uh was i was i mean it really shows my youth at that point it was really the product of a creative writing program And a lot of uh, pent up uh, themes and frustrations from a life of really just traveling around a lot and always being the new person and dealing with a family situation that was uh, really all about like getting in line and just not showing any of this to anyone. Um, So all of that kind of came out in that first book without me knowing because I felt like I was too young looking back to understand what I was really going through. But other people saw it on the page and saw that there was some potential in this material. It's like, oh, you're fucked up in a particular way. So,
0: like, <laughs> we can make I mean, something of that. <laughs> yeah, let, let's see where this
1: can go. Um, and then the second book, Nico, which took about seven years to, uh, to publish, was a much harder uh, process. And it was really the book where I learned how to write a novel and I learned how to fail at writing a novel. I think I wrote 15 different versions of that book. The, the first book ended up setting me up with uh, an agent, and uh, at that age, in my mid-20s, I thought, well, I've got an agent now. In about three weeks, I'm going to be signed to Knopf, and uh, we're off to the races, and that didn't happen, right? Sure. Uh, so uh, it, uh, I learned a lot about the publishing industry uh, with uh, that second book, and really came to terms with what kind of writer I was going to be, which was a Montreal-centric, Quebec-based, indie writer. And, uh, you know, that's a hard thing to come to terms with at a certain age when you're aspiring uh, to something bigger. And I think I learned a very important lesson about the arts uh, during that phase is that you you can't really control the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you, you kind of get what you get and you have to be uh, OK with that uh, and you have to make the most of that. And that's the only way you're going to garner any kind of satisfaction uh, out of this process. So there was a learning curve during that book. And I felt like, you know, my, I got married at that point. I, I had a child, I had all these big life events. And I kept thinking about this failure of a book that wasn't getting published. Uh, and so that was Nico. And then the bleeds was, I was, uh, it took me another seven years. And I felt like that was the most deeply flawed of the books I wrote. And so, you I, feel that
0: now? You, you're looking back on it? You feel Or that when, time, when you were working on it? At the time,
1: it. I knew it, there was a, a flaw to overcome in the book, and it was set pretty early on, but I already committed to it. And I didn't want to uh, give up on it because I'd spent some time there. And so I built this really complicated structure uh, to work around the flaw. Uh, But it was still way too political a book to really resonate with anyone other than uh, people really interested in the price of uranium, uh, given, (laughs) you know, the fluctuating uh, global politics. Um, I still like aspects of that book, but uh, it was the one that really did the least overall. And it made me realize that I really can't be writing out of anger. That was a book where I realized I Mm. hit that dead end. Uh, and that if I didn't show some feelings on the page soon, um, there was really nothing left to write about. Um, And then, uh, so I arrived at Hotline, and the pandemic was hitting at the same time, and I was sitting there looking out my window and, like, seeing the street empty and someone across uh, the street sitting at their window, like, longing for intimacy as well. And it kind of just all clicked at that point. I was in my, like, uh, early 40s, and uh, I just felt like I, uh, I uh, it had been too long thinking about these, uh, these childhood hangups that I still seem to have. And I was sitting there at my desk thinking, like, why am I still thinking about childhood and its ramifications at this stage right. in my life um, when I have my own kid and I have that to worry about? And so I just began to look at things from a different vantage point, and that kind of softened things up and I took a different perspective and it felt like a, you know, like a personal breakthrough as an artist. I mean, there's ways to think of this commercially and I felt like I did that for earlier books, but with this one, it was really just about, you know, I can, uh, I've got something that I haven't said before uh, that I finally feel like I want to say. And I think people saw that people were saying, well, you wrote a first book for your fourth book. Uh, and I was like, well, right. maybe I wasn't ready to write my first book four books ago. Uh, yeah. So it, it ended up that way. And uh, I don't know that you get that many opportunities to do that over the course of a writing career. I'm, I'm glad I, I, I was able to.
0: Yeah, I always say, if anybody asks about my very first novel, I always call it my demo tape. I'm sort of like, yeah, that's the one where I was sort of figuring out how the mics worked and, you know, how close to get to the microphone and how that all worked. But it's 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 all just workshopping. It's all just yeah. uh,
1: yeah. I mean if you if anyone's gonna read it now, read it for potential, but it's not like a book.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You say that like, you know, black bodying came out and it was almost you were almost in this state of of kind of even though you were an angry young man, you were kind of in a state of innocence about the industry, about the reality of what it means when a book is out in the world. And then Nico, you had a little more of a sense of like, oh, books are a thing and it can lead to this and it could lead to a career. Did it ever, did those aspirations and those thoughts that start getting in your head like, oh, I'm going to be an internationally known, I'm going to be on panels with Margaret Atwood in London and, you know, did that ever impact the writing itself or was that always just Somewhere in your brain. Yeah, Did you ever ask yourself, you're fine finding? Like, I should be writing about blah. That will get me to that level.
1: Yeah, that was uh, the the fundamental mistake that I oh. made uh, at that juncture. That was and the bleeds?
0: It, that, that was the flaw that, of the
1: bleeds, you think? No, that was the flaw of everything that happened after black bodying. Okay. Black bodying came out on this tiny Montreal press, uh, DC Books, uh, when I was very young. And I, I wasn't ready for attention. I was I was very surprised that that book got attention. It was nominated for a number of prizes. It won one of them. And all of a sudden there's major publishers, you know, inviting me out to lunch. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these like uh, these boozy lunches you hear about, uh, right. um, that, you know, I'm reading about like my favorite authors having these one week and then I'm having one uh, the next and that goes to your head if you don't know what to do with it. I was very much like outside of this community uh, at that time. So I really didn't know how it worked or even if I felt I did, I, I, it's still my imagination ran away with it. And I see it happen to a lot of young writers now that, uh, uh, you know, that first taste of success comes around. And so I began writing with that in mind and that I have a career goal I want to attain
0: mm-hmm.
1: and this book is going to get me there. And that's a bad way to go about it because, you know, you have to write the book you want first and then the career comes after that. You can't really put the cart before the horse uh, in that situation. So um, I was impatient and that just led to showing a lot of work too early. You Mm -hmm. know, now I don't really show work that early, but I was just showing it to whoever would look and thinking, you know, maybe like the first book, they're going to see the potential in this and they're going to want to work on it. And with the publishing industry, it didn't really work that way. Uh, mm-hmm. So there was a lot of going back and forth, a lot of frustration that developed out of that. Uh, that book, Nico, went out with all the major publishers and the medium level ones, for that matter, three different times over five years, and it oh, got wow. rejected by everyone. And there were some nice rejections uh, among there. I'm sure we're all aware. Whoever is listening to this podcast, what a nice rejection <laughs> sounds like, yeah, uh, yep. from uh, from a major publisher, but. Uh, that was the wall I was up against. And I staked so much of my own identity uh, into that. And then near the end of the process, I had an appendicitis that I wasn't even paying attention to because I was worried about this book. I had like a five-month-old son that I was taking care of at the time. And my appendix actually burst. And I didn't, I just let it go for three or four days. And I pretty much passed out at my sister's wedding right after giving a speech. And they took me to the hospital. And the doctor says, (laughs) Uh, you know, another 24 hours and you would have been dead. And I'm sitting there in a hotel, a hotel room, a hospital room, uh, convalescing for over a week uh, with fluids draining out of me. And I should be thinking about my life, but I'm thinking about this book and how it's not going anywhere. And that's, I, I think the degree to which this kind of silent obsession that authors go through with what's going to happen with their career and what it means if it doesn't work out. And I finally let that go at that point and said, you know what, uh, I think, you know, vehicle might be an interesting place to uh, to try. My agent never wanted to try uh, going there because it was too small stakes uh, for them at the time. So I'm like, I'm going to go behind my agent's back and I'm just going to send this. They accepted it in five days uh, and uh, I've been there ever since. And I feel like all those goals I wanted to achieve through that channel with the agent and the major publishers, I've kind of gotten to anyways. It yeah. just took a different route to get there and you just don't know how it's going to end up. But uh, I shouldn't have worried as much as I did, but I guess that's what I tell people now, like don't be the person who ends up in the hospital bed worrying about something inane uh, when uh, things are going to just take their course.
0: Yeah. It, it kind of, we're, we're a little early in the episode to get to like final thoughts of wisdom, but it does kind of remind me of a, of a story I've always kind of clung to an interview with a comedian that I like where he talked about how before he became a professional comedian, he was known as the funniest guy in the room. And everyone was like, you're the, you're the one, you're the one we all love. You're the one who makes the comedians laugh. And then as soon as he started getting paid and getting on stage and getting some attention, he went professional and his voice died and he became what he thought a professional comedian is supposed to sound like. And he said, it took him about 10 years to relax enough to just become himself again, to find himself again as he was when he was just making people laugh off stage. And I've clung to that as this idea that like, it almost feels counterintuitive that you need to kind of declench and relax a little and just find your voice. It takes takes a lot of work to be natural. It takes a lot of work to relax. Was there some of that as you were writing hotline that you felt like i don't need to push this as much i'm not pushing things or or what did you feel while you were writing the book did it well, feel different as you were I writing
1: mean, it it was it was partially that uh, that uh, i would i'd been through this process before and that i realized after three books that you know no matter what i put out there it seemed like it, it things would get attention for especially after this well actually all the books would get attention for at least a year to a year and a half. And I know that doesn't happen to other writers, but I was very fortunate enough to have it happen with my books. And so no matter where they came out, they they would get this attention. It wouldn't necessarily result in sales,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: it was it was critically acclaimed, which is uh, you know the the kind of minor success that uh, the majority of us kind of live for uh, <laughs> uh, in, in these situations. But I think the thing that kind of tempered me out the most in the end, was becoming a fiction editor uh, at Vehicle uh, in 2013 because it it put me around the editing process and the acquisitions process and everything else straight through the marketing and the publishing for three to four books a year. And so by the time I got the hotline, I felt like I had 25 books under my belt, uh, including my right. own. And so I'd seen myself go through the process. I'd seen a number of other authors go through the process. I'd given you know advice to other authors about this. And that kind of gave me a, a much better sense of everything that could happen uh, along the way, from an author's emotions to how a manuscript can you know evolve or devolve between revisions. Uh, depending on where the writer wants to go, how temperament is really very important to your relationships with other people and also your relationship to the work itself. And, uh, you know, you pick up a lot of like tricks along the way as well as like if something's not working in a manuscript, if you've seen it in four other manuscripts by that point, you can isolate it in your own work pretty easily and you know what questions to ask. So all those aspects of the experience that come with editing, uh, and publishing other people's work, uh, that that put me in a position that I feel is is quite rare. In that you you really get exposed to the process way more than someone who's just writing uh, books. And it it really makes it less about me. It was the first book where I found myself saying, "You know what? I've said what I want to say. Let's. What do people want to hear from me?" And Mm. uh, why don't I write for an audience for a change instead of just for expressing myself. And uh, that really focused things in a, in a really interesting way. And it freed me up in a big way. It took a lot of responsibility off of me, made the writing that much more fluid and just uh, evocative, I think uh, in the end, and I could focus on someone other than myself. And I think that's really important to books resonating with people.
0: That's interesting because The default that most writers say is, oh, you just have to write for your own internal audience and not worry about how this will be received. But that process of putting books out in the world as the editor at Esplanade made you think that, no, the audience is part of this process. You allowed those considerations of what will a reader think into your mind, even as you were writing it, even before anybody else looked at it.
1: Yeah, because I think a lot of the writers just put that off on the editor. And it's the editor's <laughs> job to think about that, right? Yeah. How do I shape this for an audience? And usually you look to your editor to be the person who will tell you about what, an, how an audience is going to react to a particular part of your book or particular themes in your book or what those themes are saying or um, if something is inherently problematic or if there's ramifications that you can't see. And now I find myself thinking those things myself because I'm already having that conversation with other writers all the time. I can't help but instinctively feel mm-hmm. it uh, in my own work, and it's kind of just put everything in a nice little box. It's it's not so overwhelming as a result, and I don't feel that. I mean, I feel like my over the course of writing a book for three or four years, my expression is still going to come out. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of how it comes out, right? Is it going to be filtered through uh, this vantage point of an audience, or is am I going to put the impetus completely on? Uh, this is my sole expression for the next five years. And this is what people are going to think of me uh, by the time uh, it's over. And you, you get to the, the latter through the former anyways. So it's, it's worth it to go through the, the practice of of thinking about the audience along the way.
0: Yeah. I want to talk a bit about your, your editing work at Esplanade. And I'll preface this by saying literally a few minutes before we started this call, I discovered something that I had completely forgotten and I'm going to guarantee that you've forgotten it as well Um, because just a little peek behind the curtain, I actually forgot to send you a Zoom link for this call (laughs) and I had to frantically send it five minutes before we started. But the first thing I did was search in my email because I had forgotten where we were communicating. I looked up your name in my email and I came across an email from you from 2014
1: i have not forgotten
0: you have not forgotten okay well but- i had
1: completely forgotten
0: and i apologize that i would forgotten you were getting in touch with me saying oh i mutual friend uh emily donaldson had said i had been working on some short stories you were basically saying you know keep us in mind keep esplanade in mind if 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 they ever come to anything which i will say in my own defense they never came to anything i've never gone back to those short stories um and you were nice enough to mention that, you know, you did go to graduate school with my wife, Megan Strymus. So mm-hmm. we have we have also like uh, shared
1: bylines of the Toronto Star for a number of years. Yes, we you,
0: did. Yeah. yeah. So I had forgotten that you had you had done a little bit of editorial headhunting. <laughs> and as soon as I saw that, was like, of course, I felt a moment of guilt of like I'd answered it. And I said, of course, I would come back to this. Mm-hmm. And I never came back to it because I never went back to look at short stories. But that speaks to you in that, because that was your
1: first year there. You were kind yeah, of I was, I was putting the I tentacles out. List. Nothing had yeah. come out yet. Yeah. And it was a matter of how do you get started? And it was such a gargantuan mission to kind of build this thing up, especially it was since it was a kind of almost like a list that had been like dormant
0: for mm-hmm. like
1: a year and a half before I, I got it. The, the previous editor, Andrew Steinmetz, had done good work for the first uh, decade, but it's the kind of work that kind of burns you out oh I'm sure uh, after a while and then, unless you figure out a way to, sus- to sustain it over time and so i was uh given this list at this like in my early 30s and it just seemed like an opportunity to do something but who is going to come along with me to do it all right i mean right. a lot of authors are not going to put their trust in this uh, situation so who's going to step up first uh <laughs> was a big question uh at that point um luckily i'd uh, I mean, you have a musical background too, but one of my first gigs out of grad school were in independent music. Mm-hmm. And so I worked at, uh, at at record labels. And so I became quite familiar with how, you know, three people in a room with the right idea can build anything from scratch. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you just have to like, you know, not, you knock on 12 doors for one to open and then you get that one to open and you kind of run with it and you make an example of that. And then you build from there and it's grassroots. So I've always done everything in this DIY grassroots approach. And so this was my opportunity to take that record label experience and put the process into publishing and, you know, figure out, okay, what kind of goals do I want out of the first two years? What do I want out of the first five years? Uh, Where are things going to go? How do I fit into this? Am I even part of this still? Or do I like go elsewhere with my work? And then, you know, a lot of my favorite record labels, they had their, you know, the, the, the people in charge. We're also part of the work. If you're proud of what you're doing, you put your name in it, and right. you take part of that team. You don't step aside and go to the bigger team. You you stick with that team, and you you know you you navigate that ship. And so all those ideas kind of just like move from there.
0: Again, thank you for reaching out back then when you were when you were starting to build that list. Although it, I feel like it does speak to your desperation that you would reach out to me Uh, like that i would be on that that list i'm sure the list was (laughs) very long but putting out hotline with esplanade um there's one sense where was that always going to be the case or was it uh, you know equivalent to like when dick cheney headed up the search for a vice president for george bush and was like oh actually it's going to be me <laughs> like he he went out and found himself was there any talk about should i keep this separate from my day job or does it actually work better if if i'm part of this process
1: well i think those questions largely happened with the bleeds the first book where i had to contend with that uh with that question because right. i i was <laughs> offered the editorship shortly after nico so bleeds was the first one oh that's right. That yes. on so by the time i got to hotline i kind of realized that if i'm implicated in the process and i i this is was another thing that i took from indie music is that if you know how to do parts of the process you go ahead and do them you do not leave them to someone else so i know that I like the cover a particular way. I like the book to be presented in a particular sense. I know that if I reach out to certain people in advance personally, I'm going to get garner more of a reaction than a publicist will. If I set up a launch in a particular way that's not like your typical launch, it'll get more attention. If I pair that with media, things will happen that way. Um, so I knew that if I wanted more control over the process, And I feel like I'm more comfortable operating that way. And it's not necessarily the best thing for an author to sit back and say, I've got three publicists working on this and they met me six weeks ago and like they think they know me and here we go. Let's see what the next six weeks of my book is gonna be like before it dies. Well, I mean, one of the other big things I took from indie music was that, We all say how the book cycle is about six weeks long. Once a book comes out, it's got about six weeks to catch. And after that, no one's interested. Um, But the older system uh, underlying that is that you can really play out a book for eight months to 12 months if you pace things out correctly and you set up a schedule uh, so that there's that continuous trickle of visibility that leads you. Uh, throughout the year. so I, I knew I wanted to play it that way. I would sooner have the longer trickle of visibility and have things build up incrementally than to have this big blast at the beginning and see if it turns into a bestseller and if not, then they move on to the next book. Mm-hmm. Um, so knowing that I was like, you know unless you have a certain audience size, it's not really going to work in that uh, in that that other mold of the six weeks. So I wanted control over the the lifespan. Uh, of the process. And so it seemed like with this book, we all knew that we had an inherently good book on our hands. And I'd worked with Simon dardick and uh, everyone else at Vacuil for almost a decade at that point. So it was a case of it was a devil I knew. Uh, we all knew each other. And uh, we we trusted each other uh, on to, to make things happen in a particular way. And that's a rare feeling, too, in publishing, that you trust the people that you're working with because uh, mm-hmm. you've been working together for that amount of time. A lot of people turn over a fair bit, and we had the same group there for, for almost a decade. Um, so all those, it just seemed like the better way to make sure the book got to where it needed to go. I was fortunate enough that I've had a very strong French publisher, La Peplade. Uh, at the same time, ever since Nico and my books come out almost simultaneously in English and French, and they have uh, a similar size audience, if not bigger in French, before the whole Canada Reads thing happened. So I knew there was going to be attention on that side, and we pasted so that book, uh, the French version, would come out a year after the English exactly, so that all we need to do was maintain a twelve-month cycle for this book to gain attention, and then the French one would take over, and that would lead us into a second year, and then I would have almost like two years worth of attention. Uh, out of it so all these you know these these deliberations that most authors don't really go through because they don't have that editorial eye on it um, went into it and I think that that's part of what kept that book going until the whole Canada Reads thing came about and after that it's just a lottery right you never know what's going to happen when that comes uh, together.
0: What I'm loving about this you describing that whole process is you know connecting to what we were talking about earlier about you kind of releasing some of that sense of like, I've got to get my angriest, most intense thoughts into this book and and cram it in and throw it in people's faces and kind of stepping back and going, no, this should be a little bit more for an audience, which speaks to a certain sense of humility around the process. But then what you're talking about, the way you're talking about this process also speaks to confidence where you're thinking like. I'm not going into it kind of shrugging my shoulders going, I don't know. Will anybody like it? It's a piece of garbage, but maybe it's got like you're going into it saying, no, this is a solid book. This is a well-written book that I've created and it deserves an audience. And how do we get give it the best shot? We can't guarantee anything, but how do we give it at least the best shot? Because you're right. There were. I'm, I'm sure there are many authors who still kind of exist in this world, but. 20 years ago, the world was the author hands it over to a publisher and then sits back and waits for the phone to ring and maybe goes, you know, did you send it to the Globe for review, you know, is there going to be an ad in Quill and like their their connection to it is so removed, they're just waiting to be kind of invited along, whereas i mean what you're describing it's almost like a control freak's dream where you're like no we know exactly when that ad is going to run we know exactly when that translation is going to appear that will reflect back on but as you say the canada reads thing through that all uh into a different completely different light and and wreck those plans in the nicest way i would say Ooh. um did you follow the debate did you follow it live or did you choose to step aside and and i mean i know you had to be engaged with it to some extent no i
1: followed it i mean i think you were day to day yeah i mean this uh let's be honest this is not something that's gonna probably happen again mm. uh so to, to say i was uh removed myself from it was, i know i feel like the last two decades have kind of been aspiring to this kind of moment i think uh a lot of publishing is like you you throw something out there and you hope it sticks, but 85% of the time it doesn't. And, mm-hmm. uh, or it gets, you know, that basic attention that, uh, you know, the readerly class gives books, but to go beyond that readerly class to, uh, to, to that level, I was very curious how it would be taken by people who weren't necessarily readers, because that's the next level up. Uh, In terms of uh, the audience, what do people make of this when they're not, when they're not aware of Canadian publishing as a process, they're not aware of me uh, as a writer with themes, and they're definitely have uh, a different take on how they look at diversity, because I think uh, one of the things that we, uh, I do a little differently, what Esplanade does a little differently, is uh, take a less apologetic look at diversity and not really just like hand it over on a platter. In a way, and say like this is uh, our intergenerational uh, trauma story, and uh, right. let's discuss it from that perspective. Um, so, um, I I was curious how it it would play out, and uh, and people aren't lying when they say that that uh, that, uh, that process is a career changer. I mean, it it affected almost every aspect of my life, especially someone who teaches in a creative writing program uh, at Concordia. Um, everyone looked at me differently after that and so it uh it it was an interesting thing and I think it uh it 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 threw me for a loop at the time because people aren't necessarily nice on that show uh I mean you're there to pretty much like cut down everyone else's book and author until yours wins um and so you hear a lot of things you probably don't want to hear but I think uh I came at it with as thick of a skin as I could have, and it still uh, was affecting. So I can't imagine what it's like for someone who uh, is coming a little greener uh, Mm -hmm. into this situation and how how they would approach uh, hearing those things.
0: Well, I I did interview uh, Jill Adamson uh, for this podcast and we talked about, because her book was also, uh, her first novel was also on the Canada Reads, one of the Canada Reads selections. And she went completely the opposite route. Her editor actually said, I know you, Jill, stay as far away from this as possible. Don't listen. Her sense was that it was an earlier version, an earlier iteration of Canada Reads, which was maybe a little nastier and a little more jabby. Uh, But I don't I don't know if that's true, but um, were there moments when you were watching it where you wanted to kind of reach through the screen or, or debate the people who were debating your book, like get online and go, no, no, they have this completely wrong. That's not how that
1: thing plays out. I did go online at one point after the show ended, because it felt like the uh, there were uh, panelists on that program who uh, didn't really give the book enough time. And I think Mm. that was the biggest thing. It was uh, it was debated in this way of like, I didn't want to be inside this, this, uh, immigrant woman's mindset. Uh, and when you, you, when you hear like white women say that, uh, it, it's quite particular, especially when other books have, uh, you know, similar first person perspectives that go into sexual assault and all these other things and yeah. perfectly willing to engage with those, but someone doesn't have a job and is living in a small apartment and that's all of a sudden an uncomfortable mindset. It makes you think twice about where those, uh, notions come from. And mm. so I felt like there was this, uh, Attitude towards the book that was part and parcel with the themes of the book, and that like certain people in society just aren't going to be given the uh, the the, their dues in terms of respect uh, for the process. And I I feel like it wasn't debated until the end, and then like the way it got eliminated was uh, by this kind of like hair trigger uh, vote by someone who was problematic uh, to begin with in their approach uh, to the book, and everyone saw that. I mean, the mm-hmm. debate exploded online. It almost seemed like the book was uh, it began, it began to represent its themes for everyone who'd read it. and uh, uh, that loss ignited uh, an interest in, in the book uh, that wouldn't have been there had it gone off a different way. So it was controversial, it felt like, and even like all the pundits afterwards who were talking about it noticed the the weird, uh, you, know, racial dynamic uh that was underlying that um so at that point i mean you find yourself as an author and as a person uh who who i mean you get used to letting a lot of things slide along Mm -hmm. the way people make these offhand comments and they think they're being funny or they think they're being smart but you as a person who is in the the poc role uh, i'll say at this point or the immigrant role uh they think they're making an individual comment and it's a joke, but you hear this over and over again throughout your life. And I you know, I think certain demographics have this with certain types of comments. And so it was that type of commentary that uh, was affected. And I, I asked myself, I'm like, do I let this go? I mean, everyone else is talking about it. Do I just ignore it like nothing happened or do I say something for a change? And so I said something and uh, it, uh, it it resonated with a lot of what people were thinking. Uh, at the time. And it seemed like for once it was nice not to have to apologize uh, mm. for someone else making uh, a weird situation weirder. And uh, so, I mean, that's what Canada Reads taught me is like, if you have something to say, like, I could shadow box with these people in my head for the next three months, or I could just say something now right. and, and let it out and just like move on from that. And, you know, it was the end of the process. so I figured I might as well just say something and leave it at that. And uh, I'm glad I did.
0: And do you feel you were successful in that for yourself? Like, did that allow you to kind of go, okay, that's now that part of it is over, or did it still? Were you still shadow boxing for a few weeks internally? Uh,
1: no, I think that uh, that that helped me like let it out and right. uh, and to be able to walk away because it was getting to the point, And I'm sure other guests you've had on the show have said this with uh, these major prizes and these situations they can they can really eat away at you if you sure. let them uh and there has to be some closure along the way. You have to find out where that line is and sometimes you don't know where that line's going to be until you're like two steps uh, uh near it. And so I was in that moment I was like, you know, if I say something this is going to be the end of it for me. That's going to be my closure to this whole thing. And uh, let's just go ahead and do that and uh and see what happens and then uh, it it kind of ended that way and then it was really nice because Gurdeep took the ideas and he took them onto the show in his own words the next day. And we, we he reached out and we talked about that. And then Michael Gray Eyes went on after the show was over saying this pretty much the same thing on on his Instagram. And so it, it kind of had this echo that allowed other people to kind of say, you know what, like, it's true. Uh, we can talk about these things. This did happen. This was an episode uh, of uh, of a kind of discrimination that's uncomfortable to name. It's not racism, but it's kind of uh, this, this, this perspective we have in society that we kind of just give a pass to uh, a lot of the time. And it's an important enough platform that we should note it. And so mm-hmm. other people ended up doing that. And so the ripple effect of it uh, was ultimately the biggest success of the 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 process for me. And it allowed me as someone who was like the only independent on that list uh, to be able to say, you know what, I, I came into this with some principles and I'm gonna walk out with some principles and that's gonna be what I take into the next book.
0: Well, it, it also helps that your book was being championed by Gurdip, who's like the physical human embodiment of joy. Yes. <laughs> the, the man is like, he just exudes joy in everything he does. And I think you recently met him, or you met him like months yeah, after we met that. Yeah,
1: months after he came to yeah. Montreal, and we went on a walk, and we talked about the whole process. And he gave me some insights as to, you know, uh, what the the back, uh, you know, the behind the scenes uh, were like, and how certain people reacted, and uh, to to things, and what the Canada Reads people were like, and uh, you know what they were pushing, and what they ultimately wanted, and uh, a lot of this is pretty orchestrated. Uh, yeah
0: I mean, twitchy. as all reality TV is, it, there's yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of massaging I'm' I'm, I'm fully guessing, but uh, please don't tell me that Gurdeep was like a bitter like c- cigarette smoking the no, whole time going is, those uh, bastards
1: through, through <laughs> that uh, image of joy uh, that uh, that one sees on TV. I was happy to see that in reality that he was a lot more reflective. <laughs> uh, Than uh, TV led on. I think TV didn't really give him the opportunity to uh, to analyze uh, to his best uh, potential. Uh, but in person, without the cameras on and without the scripting for things, he was uh, you know uh, a much more approachable and uh, just uh, honest person about his thoughts and who still is overall positive. But I mean, can see the criticisms. Uh, mm-hmm. for what they were and articulate them in a way that I don't think he was ready to do on TV because it it went against his values.
0: I'm curious to know in terms of where you are right now as a writer with Hotline still active. I mean, you just sold the U.S. right. So that book is going to be that edition is going to be coming next year, I guess. Uh, the French edition came out earlier this year as as per your master plan. I'm always curious about how writers when they do have a book that has that kind of success that kind of long tail to it how do they let it go in their imagination have you been able to do that or are you still kind of in I'm still working on this book
1: I mean I feel like I'm the custodian of this book uh, at this point like I I have spoken to it uh, a number of times most people ask the type of questions that I can give the same answer to uh, so the answers are, are already there and then there's, you know, the engagements you end up doing for it. And you have to keep doing that stuff because it's, uh, you, you, uh, you aspire for a book to have this long tail. So you can't mm-hmm. really be complaining about how it, uh, it's taking up your time for, uh, the new work. I mean, I tend to work in pretty concentrated manners. I, I'll, I teach eight months of the year. So I keep four months of the year for writing. Uh, so I'll write in the summer. So last summer, I got started on a new idea. I'd had a proposal together for it. So I, I, I got about 25,000 words down, which is pretty good for a summer, uh, I'd find. I mean, they're not the right words uh, at this nice. point, but they, they got me <laughs> yeah. a lot further along in kind of exploring the idea. And I feel like next summer, after eight months of thinking about those 25,000 words, I'll be able to go back to it again and, you know, advance it even further. If it takes four or five years, uh, that's what it's going to take at this point, right? I feel like one of the uh, one of the best things to come out of this uh, hotline, attaining uh, that level of success is that I don't have to have my foot on the gas pedal the way I have for the past 20 years. Like I can finally just sit back and say, you know what, if I wait five years, someone's actually going to remember me maybe, or remember hotline at least, and it'll still be on their shelf. Um, so... I feel like I've bought myself some time uh, as a result of this process, and there's no real rush uh, to 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 follow it up quickly. I see that mistake happen way too often uh, mm-hmm. in publishing, where a, a a first book comes out, it makes it onto a program like that, or gets up uh, nominated for a Giller or something, and has that big splash, and then there's this whole industry of agents and publishers saying we need that book in two years. Like, let's sell this next thing while it's hot because you're going to get more money for it now than you would in five years' time maybe. Mm-hmm. But let's let's sell the next three books now and let's get them on a carousel and let's start pumping them out. But they're not going to be the same book. Uh, they're uh, The quality is just not going to be there because you can't really churn out a good book in two years. Uh, no. It needs a lot longer. I mean, the waiting process is is part of what like makes the book better. Uh, so I think readers ultimately end up sensing that, uh, it will never reach the heights of that one book. And, uh, I don't know. I don't feel like I want to do that at this point. It comes down to what I want to do. I've been at this for like 20 years now and I've built a life around me. That's quite comfortable. Books are not going to change my life. Uh, Other than they'll bring more attention or less attention, but like my day to day life is not going to change from from books at this point. So as far as I'm concerned, I'll I'll take the time I need, and uh, hopefully people will be there and if I make it past uh, 50 doing this, then well, that's amazing because our culture doesn't respect anyone over 50. So, <laughs> so you know, it's a per- pretty rarefied territory to get to if you get to that point and you're still somehow culturally relevant. So we'll see what happens when I get there.
0: I was just thinking the 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 next worst thing, or maybe even slightly worse than the scenario you're describing, where it's like strike while the iron's hot, get no. that next book right out, is when they do the thing of like, okay, you you won an award. You've got this attention. Your brand is hot. What can we put out right now? And the author says, well, I had this collection of stories from 20 years ago that no one published. We'll put those out. And all of a sudden, the thing you made when you were like 21 is now your next.
1: Yeah. The next big one, you know, the 15,000 word essay that you've expanded upon or something that (laughs) you put out in large print somehow and turned into a book.
0: Yeah. Which does remind me, I I better reply to that email from the editor at at Esplanade Books that I got about ten years ago. (laughs) I think I might have an idea. What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukaszewski, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukaszewski.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books and not just new ones.